0: This is the account in Luke's gospel of Jesus' transfiguration, where we see him transfigured before Peter, James, and John, and we have a special insight into the purpose for his coming, why he came. So let's hear from Luke chapter 9, and then we'll read the 53rd chapter of Isaiah as well. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 28, this is God's holy word. He gives it to us, his people, for our good. Let's give our attention to its reading. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, Whom I have chosen, listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. Next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions, so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. O oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, for he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. Amen. And then turn, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, found on page 1145, you're using the pew Bible in front of you. Here we have a prophecy given of the Messiah about his substitutionary work on behalf of his people. We'll focus mainly on verse 5 this morning, but let's hear the prophet Isaiah speaking as the Holy Spirit has directed him in the 53rd chapter. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is silent so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and who can speak of his descendants for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his whole soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is remarkable in about the two and a half hours or so of Handel's Messiah, every word, every lyric is taken from Scripture and every Scripture that is used ties in a very direct and clear way to Jesus Christ. It's a, a musical journey through the, the sweep of Scripture, specifically as it relates to Jesus Christ the Messiah and the, the, the clearer that you understand Jesus and the way that he relates to Scripture, the more you will understand God's Word as a whole. If you understand that sweep of Scripture, then as you go to God's Word, you can be sure that you are on the road to knowing Christ rightly, more deeply, more intimately, more devotedly. It helps us navigate perhaps the, the many parts of scripture where we struggle to find a clear understanding if you understand that in some way it's connecting us to Jesus Christ. But to know all of these things and to learn about Jesus Christ and to understand that all scripture points to him, sometimes the reaction can be, well, will it ever, will it ever get old if we're constantly trying to tie everything to Jesus Christ? And of course to that we say, no, you can spend your entire life Focused mainly and primarily on the work of Christ, the person of Christ, the glory of Christ, and you can still not even scratch the surface. This was why John Newton took 56 weeks of sermons unfolding the passages of Handel's Messiah. His desire for his people was that whether they were in Westminster Abbey listening to a, a wonderful presentation of Handel's Messiah, or in their living room, simply contemplating the work of Jesus Christ, it could have the the same result, that they could be caught up, as caught up in the glories and the beauty of Christ, by knowing him more and by understanding all of these scriptures. Of course, as Handel's Messiah does, as we do rightly when we think about the story of Christmas, we must at some point go to the cross We must at some point center ourselves on why Jesus came to earth to suffer and to die on the cross. All of his life was suffering and our catechism points that out quite well. That even from the very beginning he was was suffering and he was suffering in his humiliation. Isaiah chapter 53, he was like a lamb before its shearers. The, The glory and the dignity of a sheep is in its wool and thus when that sheep is shaved, all of that wool is taken off, its glory is gone. And, and that is the, the, the story of Jesus Christ, that outward glory of being God, true God. What does he do when he comes to earth? He takes on that appearance of a servant. He being the God who made all things, appears on earth as one who was created to serve God. He has that appearance of a servant. He lays that outward glory aside like a sheared lamb stripped of his rightful glory, but it all leads to Calvary, the the pinnacle, the culmination of his suffering, that he goes to the cross as a once-for-all sacrifice. And in that, we find the center of redemption, we find the purpose of scripture, the one act perhaps above all others that God would want us to think about and to meditate on so that we might learn more about our Savior. We ought to listen to the conversation of heaven. When heaven decides to speak, we know that it is not pointless. We know that we ought not take those words lightly. And in Luke chapter 9, we see this meeting of heaven and earth. And as Moses and Elijah come to converse with Jesus Christ, as Peter and James and John are beholding this and we even read that they're sleepy but then they realize the glorious things that are going on. Moses and Elijah are speaking with Jesus and they're not speaking about uh, earthly kingdoms that are rising and falling. They're not speaking about the latest developments in technology or in the economy. They're speaking about, as we read in verse 31, the departure of Jesus. If you remember when we went through the gospel of Luke, the word there is exodus and it probably would help us if translations would use it that way they were speaking about the exodus of Jesus because the connection we are to make is to the Old Testament exodus that's a word that means departure or to leave to escape and of course the escape of redemption in, old, in the Old Testament was God bringing his people out of Egypt, redeeming them from under the bondage of Pharaoh's slavery so that they might be brought out to serve the living God. Redeemed from slavery to serve God, to live together in his peace and his righteousness in the promised land. So Moses and Elijah speak of Jesus' exodus, his departure. You can think about that in two ways the most obvious way when we read it in our English translations is he is going to depart this life, this earthly life. He is going to leave it behind. And that will be through the free giving up of his own life. He lays it down as an obedient servant. But in doing so, he is also effecting this new and greater and better exodus. He is leading out a multitude. A people beyond number who were enslaved to sin and death. They will be led out into new life, into eternal life, so that they might serve the living God. This is the conversation of heaven. This is what Moses and Elijah come to speak about. The exodus of Jesus. And here we find the centerpiece of human history. These are the things upon which we ought to focus our attention these are the things upon which we ought to focus our conversation in mirroring, mirroring the importance that the conversation of heaven gives to us. So we gather around the table this morning and we speak briefly of two things. First, the nature of Jesus' work, it is a substitutionary work. It is one for another. And then the status of his work, it is finished. It is finished. The nature of his work, substitutionary, the status of his work It is finished. First, the nature of his work. We read in verse 5 of Isaiah 53, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Many of us know that chorus in Handel's Messiah, that beautiful chorus, With his stripes we are healed. Very simply, this is the the center of the message of Scripture, message of redemption in Scripture. Very simply, it is this. Jesus Christ, the God-man, was punished in our place and took the penalty that we deserved for our sin. Very simply, it's a substitutionary work, him for us. He was punished in our place. He took the penalty that we deserved for sin. We know from our catechism that only Jesus could have been this mediator. It needed to be a man, but it could not be a sinful man because sinful flesh cannot pay for the sins of others. It must pay for its own sin first. Jesus needed to be, therefore, a perfectly righteous man. Not just a man, but a righteous man. And he also had to be eternal God that his deity might uh, carry along his humanity to finish that work as the only mediator between God and man. And we call him Savior because he saves us from our sin. And that's the central problem that each of us has in this life. That is the the number one thing that faces us in our life on earth, our sin, that which alienates us from our creator. It's not primarily poverty, it's not primarily oppression, social challenges or ostracism. It's not lack of fulfillment in love or romance, it's not disappointment in our careers, it's not even the kinds of pain that we feel when we're separated from the ones we love. All of those things are very serious Problems and very painful things to experience. But the number one problem we have in this life is our sin and our alienation from God. And thus, our salvation can be found in no one else. And that brings us to a a central realization, and it is this, the unspeakable evil of sin. We fail to recognize this on a daily basis. We fail to recognize the unspeakable evil evil of sin. How evil it is that we rebel again and again and again against our God, against our creator. Christmas, of course, brings these wonderful feelings of happiness and love and joy and peace. And it is wonderful, isn't it, to think about the face of a beautiful child born to the virgin. And in that beautiful face, you stare at a child's face, a newborn's face, you just stare at it. You can't help But behold, the wonder and the wisdom of God. And in that face was the salvation of the world. And yet, there's this haunting realization that this beautiful child has been born to be pierced. This beautiful child has been born to suffer. And even then, in those first moments, those first days, those first weeks and months and years of his life, there is this suffering in humiliation. This was a child that was destined to suffer and it it perhaps causes us to to think at certain times in the weakness of our minds, the weakness of our flesh. Is it better if a a child like this that was born to suffer, better that he had never been born if he was born to suffer so much? But when we, we think about that, what do we realize? We realize that we need his suffering. We need these wounds. We need this cross. This was the worst death that has ever happened in this world. This is the worst event, the betrayal, the crucifixion of Jesus. Why? As Isaiah 53 says, no deceit was found in his mouth. He was perfect. And then not only that, but wicked men pointed at him, he who was the perfect king, the king of creation, the king of earth, uh, we pointed at him in his face, we condemned him to death. We called him a liar and wicked and a fraud. For those reasons, we see that we, this is the worst death that ever happened. And yet, we need his suffering. We need his blood. We need these wounds. This is the tension of the Christian life to realize that without this, we cannot be made right with God. And then even beyond that, as the end of Isaiah 53 says, that in some way that is beyond all human comprehension, God willed for this to happen. It was the Lord's will, it says, to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And there is is perhaps even a deeper mystery that we could spend our whole lives trying to plumb the depths and we never would. That even beyond the physical pain and suffering of Jesus is this spiritual agony. And when he hangs on the cross, he doesn't primarily cry out for his physical pain. He cries out and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because there was a spiritual distance that he had not felt and in bearing directly the wrath of God for the sin of the human race in those moments. See, a spear may have pierced his side, but a sword pierced his soul. A sword of his father to make him experience all of these things. It was God's will to crush him. And we may say, "Well, why, why doesn't God just forget our sin? Because sometimes we feel like we do that, right? And we're called to do that as we forgive people in our family or people in our lives who wrong us and we feel like justice really is not served but we're called to forgive and forget. So we just sort of wipe it away. I'm going to stop, I'm going to forgive that person but I don't feel like everything has been set right. Why couldn't God just do that, just sort of snap his fingers? If God would have done that, then God is not just because sin must be paid for. The price must be paid. And if God is not just, then God is not trustworthy. And if God is not trustworthy, then we could not be sure that he would keep his promises through to the end without the wounds, without the blood, without the suffering of Jesus Christ. We would not be able to trust that all of these things could never be taken from us. We would not be able to be sure that as we trust in him, we will truly have eternal life. We can be sure of that because God is just. And that leads us... To the second realization, the second point today is that is the status of his work, it is finished. The nature of his work, one for another, substitutionary work, his work on behalf of our sin. And then secondly, the status of his work, his substitutionary work, it is finished. Hebrews chapter 10, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The last clause of verse 5 very simply says, With his stripes we are healed. Not we are on the road to being healed. Not we are almost healed. Not we are trying to get to the status of being healed. We are healed. With his stripes we are healed. Who is healed? We are. Who is we? Those who look to the Lamb. Those who look to his wounds and understand the meaning of his suffering and to trust in that suffering for their sin in their place. That is who is healed. God is not mocked and he knows the status of our hearts. He calls us to believe and to trust in Jesus. And he says, look to his work and trust in it. Don't trust in your own righteousness. Don't trust in your own work. Don't trust in the things that you have done, your own ability to glorify yourself or to accomplish something in this world. Trust in the work of the land. That is who is healed. But see the completeness of that work. That through this savior, your sin is perfectly paid for as you trust in him. Don't say that God can't forgive you. Don't say that God doesn't have the ability to forgive you no matter what you've done. To do so is to slight the work of the Savior. To do so is to throw it back at God and say, the work of Jesus Christ is not good enough to wipe my sin away. Don't say God can't forgive you. To do so throws dishonor upon the work of Christ. It's an old story, the cross. But it's ever new. Since the last time we came to this table, you have new sins that you've committed. Things perhaps that have even surprised you. You have different ugliness in your flesh that has come out. And disappointments that you have uh, wrought in your own flesh and in your own mind. And the way that you have treated those around you. All kinds of new things in which you have fallen short. So it's, in that sense it's new but it's old because the price is still the same. The price for your sin is still the same as it was a year ago, ten years ago, the beginning of your life, generations ago, millennia ago. The price is still the same, it's still these wounds, it's still this blood, it's still this Christ, the Savior. So look to him afresh because with his stripes we are healed. It's a completed work. He completed it obediently, Philippians 2. He was obedient unto death, but yet he completed it freely. He said, I have the authority to lay down my life. See, we see in Jesus Christ that obedience and freedom go hand in hand. The freedom to serve the living God, to be obedient unto him, that is what we are called to do because that's what Jesus did. He completed this work diligently. He set about the work of his father. He never rested. He sometimes forgot to eat bread. He was so determined to finish it. And then he fully paid the price. Whatever the law demanded is what he did. In light of the perfect work of this Jesus, we say, we echo with the psalmist in Psalm 116, what shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? That is what the work of Christ is to do in your heart. You are to look at it and behold it and think about it and you say, what can I do to serve this God who has been so good for me, to to me? Many of us walking different roads of life, different challenges, many things in life that are not completed, many things in life that we're worried about that they might crop back up in our lives, whether it be challenges, sicknesses, Things that we will never anticipate. We always feel like there are things in our life that aren't completed. And because of the the tension of that. And living in a fallen world where death reigns. There are so few things in which we can ultimately place our trust. Where can you place your trust? In the work of Christ. Why? Because it's finished. It doesn't need anything to be added to it. It is complete. It is perfect. In the face of all the things in this world that are not perfect. Jesus' work is. So look to it. And find your comfort there. So, if He has finished His work for us, we can be sure that He will finish His work in us. And with this unspeakable evil of sin, we also see the unsearchable mercies of God that He showed His justice and put His justice on display, that we can take rest in His promises and know, and know that He will not fail to complete His promises. He will not fail to see his word through to give eternal life to those who look to the work of his son. And so if Christ's work is perfect, how sweet, how excellent is the way of faith. That's the only way that we can go through life. Go through life by faith, trusting in him. Why? Because his work is perfect. It's complete. And as you look to it, you can be sure that all your sins are forgiven. For his work is a substitutionary work. And his work is a perfect work. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we ask that you would bless our time as we gather around the table now. In Christ's name. Amen. If you would take your bulletin.